Amen. You may be seated. And please uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. We're going to get to open up God's Word together and by God's grace see the beauty, the majesty of we just sung about through God's Word. Uh, Romans chapter 7, 1 through 6 will be our primary text. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the beginning of the New Testament. If you uh, hit Acts, keep going to the right. If you get to 1st, 2nd Corinthians, go back to the left. There is Romans right there. Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Romans 7, verse 1 through 6. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 7. Um, and by, by God's grace, by his providence, this is one of the most tedious and challenging uh, chapters in all of Romans. Um, and in many respects, very few commentators find a lot of alignment about what exactly Paul is doing and saying. So buckle up. This is going to be really, really fun for us uh, to think through what God desires for us to understand about himself, about his nature, about his power, about his goodness and grace through Romans chapter 7. Uh, the, let, let's keep in mind that, that the Apostle Paul is writing to Jewish and Gentile Christians in first century Rome whom he had not met yet. He had not yet visited Rome, and, and, but he understood what they understood. He understood what was into their thinking. He understood the ways that they processed the world. And so in this particular moment, in chapter 7, he focuses on the law. He focuses on what they believed morality was all about, what they grew up, many of his Jewish readers, thinking about, memorizing. And so keep in mind that Paul's Jewish readers did not like much of what the Apostle Paul had to say about the law. It was going against the grain, if you will, in particular when he wrote about the Mosaic law, that is the law that God gave his people through Moses. So when we say Mosaic law, we're talking about the law that God gave his people through Moses. And they didn't like what Paul had to say. And this is why over the past few chapters, Paul has been facing objections. Maybe not objections that he heard, you know, people say directly to him or that he read about in like a tweet timeline, but things he knew that they would be thinking because he knew the way that they thought when he wrote about the law. So Paul's focus then in this chapter is to help his readers understand where now, as Christians, the Mosaic law belongs in their life. Where the Mosaic law belongs in their life. In our passage in chapter 7, Paul is going to write this today. We are released from the law. But in a couple of weeks, or rather next week, he is going to say that the law is holy. So th this is why I mean Romans 7 is pretty tedious. So are we released from the law that we get to walk away from it? Or is the law holy? And, and therefore, we, we should continue to obey and follow and submit to God's word. Are you with me? Is, is it holy? Or are we released from it? Should we submit to the law or should we reject it? So the question for us to consider today and all the way through chapter 7 is where does the Mosaic law belong in the life of a Christian? Where does the Mosaic law belong in the life of a Christian? Now why is this important for us to consider today? Why would we care? Many of us perhaps did not grow up in a Jewish context or are not Hebrews ourselves or Jews ourselves. Well, I think one of the primary reasons we should be careful about how we answer this question is because we already have. Whether you know it or not, you've already answered this question. For some of us, the law is the way to the good life. So when we read through the Old Testament, we go, this is what pleases God, I'm going to do it. We believe that the rules make God happy. Following the rules make God happy and make us holy. And so perhaps this is you. you 
Anywhere you can find a rule, you write it down. You're like, I'll do that. That's helpful. It gives me clarity. I don't like vagueness in my spiritual life. I like clarity. The Ten Commandments are my jam. I love knowing what I'm supposed to do. For others of us, the law seems very antiquated. It feels restrictive. And so we believe that following rules that someone else has created for us actually leads to us losing our true selves. And so there's some of us in this room that have answered the question, where does the Mosaic law belong in our lives? It belongs everywhere. I want to follow it and obey it. The problem is, is that when we don't follow those rules, it leads to guilt, shame, and fear. So, so we already have answered the question, but deep down I think we already know it doesn't work. And for those of us who believe that this is just an antiquated and restrictive sort of moral code, we trust that following the impulses of our desires and our authentic self will determine what the good life looks like. But over and over again, what we have learned in progressive or common or modern secular culture is that when we get to the top of the financial district, when we get to the top of celebrity culture, when we get to all of these places, it is actually shallow and empty and we are left wanting. So it doesn't lead to the good life either. So where does the Mosaic law belong in the life of a Christian? See, we might call these the sort of religious or secular way of viewing it. So these two different kinds of ways. And so the question may be, well, which one of those is me? Well, the longer I follow Jesus and the longer I try to answer this question and the longer I'm in Christian community, particularly with you all, I, I find out more and more about my heart and about yours as well that some days I'm really religious and I like the law. And some days I'm pretty modern in my thinking. I'm like, I want to just do what I want to do. Are you tracking with me? I kind of like going back and forth depending on the circumstance. I like to keep my options open about how I treat the law. Sometimes I'm like, people aren't following the rules. Shame on them and they're guilty. Other times I'm like, let's be gracious and slow play this thing. People are all in hard situations right now. Are you, are you tracking with me? I sort of go with, and I imagine many of us, whatever the situation demands or feels right, then I go with the law or then I go with rejecting the law. So this is an important question for us to consider because I think many people look at the church and they see us go back and forth with how we treat the law and what do they call us? Hypocrites. And they are more right than I think any of us care to admit. There's hypocrisy that is involved in that. See, this is, I think, why many people outside of the church find that our relationship with the law reveals a kind of moral tension. For instance, and perhaps most popularly, let, let me give us an example of where this surfaces. Many Christians understand the Bible teaching, teaches gender as a binary concept, and sexual intimacy is something reserved for heterosexual marriage. And among various passages and places that people go to understand this kind of thinking or biblical exegesis or hermeneutic, a way of understanding the scriptures, is Leviticus 18.22. They go to the deep cuts, right? You shall not lie with a male as a woman. It is an abomination. However, those very same Christians love to eat lobster. They love to eat fried shrimp. And, and yet, in, that, in just a few chapters before, in the same book of the Bible, Leviticus 11.10 says, But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the water, of the living creatures that are in the waters, is detestable to you. Huh. Why would we obey Leviticus 18.22, but not obey Leviticus 11.10? Should we submit to the law? Or should we reject the law? Surely picking and choosing cannot be an acceptable posture. 
Surely picking and choosing which laws we obey and which ones we ignore cannot be right. So the question for us to consider from Romans chapter 7 is where does the Mosaic law fit within the life of a believer so that we will be protected from like our propensity to hypocrisy and picking and choosing when the situation uh, is most advantageous for us to obey the law or to reject it. This is what Paul focuses on on Romans chapter 7 and, and really throughout the rest of the letter of Romans. So it's key that we understand his argument here in Romans 7. So let's hear this. Romans 7, verses 1 through 6, we'll pray and then get to work. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members, not to bear fruit for, or to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which ha- held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. We say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we need your help. We pray that you would bring clarity, you'd bring comfort and joy and help and correction in our hearts and minds so that we might be a people who live rightly in accordance to the law, who live rightly in accordance to your will and your word, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's structure is pretty simple for us today. In fact, it's a very common way of teaching. Um, If you've taken a public speaking course, perhaps something like this has been offered to you as a consistent outline. Explain, illustrate, and then apply. Explain, illustrate, and apply. And this is what the Apostle Paul does here, sort of in a very clear and overt way. He explains that the law is only binding when you live in verse 1, and then he gets to verses 2 and 3. He illustrates that point through marital law, and then in the rest of the passage from verses 4 to 6, he applies the principle showing that the law, since it is binding only on the living, then we who have died to the law can and must live by the Spirit and not by what? The written code. So he explains, he illustrates, and he applies. Now we should keep in mind the larger context that Paul is writing in as he explains and illustrates and applies. Remember chapter 6, verse 15. It says, what then? Are we to sin because we are no longer under the law but under grace? And he says, by no means. Now, the question essentially, as one commentator has put it, is that does the gospel free you to live as you please? Does the gospel free you to live as you please? That's the question in Romans 6, verse 15. And Paul answers the question twice, and both of the answers are no. Both of the answers are no. So does the gospel free you to live as you please? No for one reason and no for a second reason. The first reason Paul says no is in verses 16 through 23 in chapter 6. No, the gospel does not free you to live as you please. We are slaves to righteousness, not sin. That's what we learned last week. The second no is found here at the beginning of chapter 7. Paul says, no, the gospel does not free you to live as you please. You are either married to the law or you are married to Christ. And in this particular illustration, you cannot remain unmarried. You are either married to the law or married to Christ. So, 
Those are Paul's two answers, and both are no. However, I think we need some help understanding what exactly that means for us, particularly the second answer here that he has in mind. Where does the Mosaic law belong in the life of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus? He says in verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. That's what he explains. That's the truth about the law. Here's the illustration. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul explains, and then Paul illustrates. And most agree this illustration is really confusing. It's really confusing. And and in some respects, providentially, like, it it gives me great hope because many of my illustrations and stories can be confusing, and so I'm happy to be numbered with Romans chapter 7 and with the Apostle Paul in a confusing illustration. See, one of the reasons that this this, uh, illustration is confusing is because marriage throughout the scriptures is a primary illustration of the gospel. We see this in Genesis, we see it in Ephesians chapter 5, and we see it all the way through the age to come in Revelation chapter 21. But Paul does not have that gospel illustration in mind here. What he wants us to understand in Romans 7 is that he's less concerned about that primary picture of the gospel, and he wants to communicate to us rather about how the law works. How the law works. In short, the law is only binding on the living. The law is only binding on the living. This may, this may make obvious sense, but that's what an illustration is supposed to do. Take the obvious and then apply it to the less obvious. So we, it may be obvious to us in the physical and the civil sense, but Paul is applying it to the spiritual sense. And so he's taking a concrete example of what we may all agree and understand and saying, so it is with the Lord. So as it is obvious that the law is not binding on a dead person, the same is true for those who are in Christ. It's made plain through, the, through marriage. Death changes then, what Paul is saying, death changes our relationship to the law. Death changes our relationship to the law. That's the point. However, the law, or rather what law, is Paul talking about? And to what extent has this relationship changed? And I think we need a really important excursus to understand what the Mosaic law is all about. Right? And I believe Paul is speaking in particular here in Romans 7 about the Mosaic law. So not law in general or rules in general, or restrictions in general. He's talking about the Mosaic law given to God's people. We see this account throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You know all of those books of the Bible that you didn't give much time and attention to this past week? That's the Mosaic law, right? Myself included. We, we may highlight a couple of texts or maybe take the Ten Commandments and remember it from those particular books of the Bible, but what happens in Exodus chapter 19 is God speaks to Moses after the people of God have been liberated from Egypt, and he says, I'm going to give you a, a code. I'm going to give you something. I'm going to speak it, and it's going to get written down so that you know the truth about who you are and what I desire from you in this world. It's an incredibly generous thing that God is doing. So he doesn't free his people from Egypt and just say, go and enjoy your life. He, he doesn't. This is instructive to us. He frees us and then gives us what holiness looks like in Exodus chapter 19. And then, if you're familiar with the scriptures, then Exodus 20 is where he gives us the Ten Commandments. But it's not just the Ten Commandments. In fact, for over ten chapters of Exodus, he's giving us the the moral law. He's giving us his written code. He is giving us the Mosaic law, what we would come to know as the Mosaic law. And then in Exodus 31, 18, and God gave to Moses 
when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So God speaks and then wrote the Mosaic law down, gave it to Moses for God's people, and they preserved it, not only in the written form, but memorized it, and then they put those tablets in the Ark of the Covenant, and this is what they protected and what they kept and held sacred. Within that that Mosaic law are over 600 commandments, are over 600 commands throughout the Old Testament. Now, for, for many of us, this is where it gets confusing. This is where it feels overwhelming. So what do I obey and what do I don't obey? The theologian John Calvin sort of breaks it down into three categories for us. There are civil laws, there are ceremonial laws, and there are moral laws. Civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. And it's important for us to understand these categories so that we understand where does the Mosaic law belong in the life of a Christian. The answer to that question is, well, it depends. It depends. Are we talking civil law? Are we talking ceremonial law? Or are we talking moral law? See, Paul is telling us today, like a woman whose husband has died, the law is only binding on a person as long as they live. So there is an aspect of the Mosaic law that no longer pertains to the life of a Christian. Look at verse 4. Here's where he transitions away from the illustration into the application. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you, or that we rather, may bear fruit for God. We died to the law when we died with Christ. Therefore, we are not bound to obey the law. Rather, we are, we are bound to Christ. And the language of verse 4 particularly in the ESV, which I've just read, the English Standard Version, is, is much stronger than that translation suggests. What reads in the ESV, you died, is really more like you were put to death. You were put to death. And this death is our spiritual death to the law. It's not happenstance. It's not an accident. It was not by your own volition. You were put to death. If you are in Christ, you were put to death. And our death to the Mosaic law, therefore, is a gift of God's grace by the will of the Father. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. So if it's an act of God, our death to the law and our death in Christ, what exactly did he do? What did, what did God do? Well, Jesus makes it plain in the Sermon on the Mount when he says that he came to fulfill the law. So when he talks about death, here in Romans 7, verse 4, he is alluding to the fact that something has happened to the law. God the Father sent the Son to fulfill the law, therefore making possible our death to the law. In short, this means three things about the civil, ceremonial, and moral law. First, we are to understand that Jesus makes you new. Jesus makes us new. See, in Christ, we are a new people, a new city governed by Jesus. So what do we do with all the civil law of the Old Testament or the Mosaic law? We look to Christ. He is the one who has fulfilled the civil law and has inaugurated a new kingdom that is already but not yet. So we are released from the civil law because Jesus makes us new, not civil law. Secondly, Jesus not only makes us new, but Jesus makes us clean. Jesus makes us clean, whereas prior to Jesus, the law laid out rules and regulations for spiritual cleansing for God's people. Now Jesus purifies us of a guilty conscience or from dead works to serve a living God, not the law. The law does not make you clean, church. Jesus does. 
The sacrificial system and the laws around atonement were set up as a, as a, as a sort of setup plan, if you will, so that we, will see, we would see Jesus as the fulfillment of our spiritual cleansing. It's why there's all this language in the New Testament, particularly with John, about you being washed with blood. I mean, as, as modern people, that should strike us as very odd. But if we are coming at that from a Hebrew context and from an understanding of the ceremonial law, we would see that, that the, the blood of goats and, and animal sacrifices and these sorts of things, those things don't purify us. The blood of the lamb does. The blood of Jesus does. Therefore, Jesus is the one who makes us clean, not ceremonial law. We are released from ceremonial law. Thirdly, Jesus shows us the way, not the law. However, unlike civil and ceremonial laws, moral laws are not time-bound or bound within a particular city or people or structure or cleansing process. We are released from the moral law still, though, in a sense. We are released from the moral law as a pathway to salvation. But we are not released from obeying the moral law that has revealed to us the character and nature of God. If we are made in the image of God, we are meant to live or to reflect or represent him as long as we have breath. So Jesus then shows us the way and we're called to follow him. See, from ancient Israel, these three types would have blended together, but in Christ, we see them very differently. We understand that Jesus has come to make for himself a new people. Therefore, when he says that I have fulfilled the law, he has freed you, released you from the civil laws of the Mosaic law. He has freed you and released you that he makes you clean, makes us clean from the ceremonial laws. And he has freed us, in a sense, from the moral law because we could not perform the moral law without God's spirit. And so he puts a right spirit within us, making us able to actually obey the moral law of God. So where does the law the Mosaic law fit in the life or belong in the life of a believer. Well, the civil law has been released completely. The ceremonial law has been released completely. And God's moral law, now we can actually obey because God's spirit lives within us. This is where Paul takes us next. See, by following Jesus and obeying his will and word, Paul tells us then we can bear fruit. Did you notice that at the latter part of verse 4? In order that we may bear fruit. He's saying that you've died to the idea that civil law makes you new and that ceremonial law makes you clean. He is saying that you have died to this idea that the moral law will save you. And because you have died to the law, you now can be wed to Christ. There's his illustration coming to bear. Because Jesus makes you new, Jesus makes you clean, and Jesus shows you the way. See, we don't follow Jesus so that we will become new. In Christ, we are new. We don't follow Jesus so that we will become clean. In Christ, you have been made clean. We don't even follow Jesus so that we'll become good. In Christ, you are good. You are a new creation. We follow and obey Jesus, namely the moral law of God, because we have already been made new. We have already been made clean. We have already been made good and filled with God's Spirit. See, we don't bear fruit to be saved. We have been saved so that we can bear fruit. So God is not looking at you and saying, get your act together. Are you picking up on this? He's not looking at you and saying, you better act new. You better get clean. Right? He's, he's not pushing this moral law on us so that we will right ourselves before we come to him. He says, you are new. Live like it. You, you are clean. Live like it. You are good. Live like it. You are bound to Christ. You are wed to him. You are dead to the law. The law is dead to you. In fact, this is always how, been, how God's law has meant 
to be received by God's people. After all, the giving of the law, when does it come? Before or after he releases his people from captivity? After. He frees them from Egypt, and then he says, here's now how you live. He has freed you from your sin, now here's now how you live. Here's how he concludes. For while we were living in flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul is actually extending this well beyond perhaps what we would even think. He is not just saying that if you obey the law, you don't have to obey the law, but that if you live your life believing that it makes you clean and makes you good and makes you new, it will kill you. It will crush you. And yet, isn't it true, even within the church, that we use the law to oppress, we use the law to guilt, we use the law to shame, to try to coerce people to live differently? That is not just a bad translation, that is anti-gospel. To tell people that they should live differently before they understand that they have been freed in Christ, to help people understand that that for freedom they have been set free so that they can live a different life, this is the gospel. Not that you bear fruit to be saved, but you have been saved to bear fruit. Why is this true? Let's think about this. If you believe that doing all of the right things or all the right behaviors will make you new, what happens when you mess up? If that is the code you have been living by, what happens when you fall short? If you think you can make yourself clean or worthy before God by following the rules, what happens when you lie to your parents? If you think by doing good, you'll make yourself good, what happens when you cannot stop harboring bitterness in your heart toward your colleagues? So do you understand? This is why the scriptures say, if you live by the law, you will die by the law. If the law is your righteousness, you are dead on the spot when you can't make yourself clean and new. This is why the gospel is so good. This is why the gospel is so freeing. This is why Paul says you have died to that and you can't go back anymore. You are in Christ, therefore you are a new creation. The old has what? Just been put away until you go back to it? No, the old is gone and the new has come. You have been freed to a new life. See, in fact, the law was actually designed to do this. It's meant to expose your weakness. It's meant to reveal your need for salvation, not prove that you can do it on your own, church. So, Where does the Mosaic law belong in the life of a believer? It belongs as a signpost for you. As a signpost for you and for I that not only prepares us for Christ, but points us to him. See, the more we understand the civil law and the ceremonial law, the more clarity we have about the power and beauty of Jesus. Because he has fulfilled it. Because he is the answer and the longing we've been waiting for, for a true and better people and a new people who are made clean in him. But it's not just a signpost. It also belongs as a revealer of sin and of the nature of God. See, when we look at God's moral law, his righteousness is revealed. His holiness is revealed. So the more we learn the moral law, the more clarity we have about who God is, what he desires for us, and the more our sin is exposed, and the more dependent we become upon his spirit. See, if we live by the law, the more we know about the law, the more guilt and shame we feel. 
But if we are in Christ, the more of the law we know, the more we see our God, the more beautiful he becomes, the more spectacular grace is, the more forgiving you become, the more patient you become. Because the more I realize how patient God is with me, how can I be short-circuited when my kids don't listen to my voice, right? How much more do I go, man, I really need to become more like him, not I'm a terrible person, I better get it together. But what what a brilliant savior, what a loving father, what a kind God it actually begins to produce fruit in your life. This is what Paul is saying to us today. So may we be a people who don't disregard the Mosaic law, like it has nothing to say to us, and we simply have been freed by the gospel to live as we please, but may we also not be a religious and oppressed people under the guise of religion or of holiness and believing that I am broken and guilty and should be shamed and fearful if I don't, if I don't fall, or if I fall short of God's law. That's not why he's given us his law. He's given us his law to reveal his character and to give clarity of the brilliance and beauty of the gospel for you and me. So may we be a people who live as a result of that and bear much fruit. So God, help us. Help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called so that much kingdom fruit would be produced for your glory and our good. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.